The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Okay, go over it again for me. Takanosuke Nojiri killed Mitsuaki Inamura because he didn't want Tatawaki Koryamato to get to Shigeyuki Korimara. Ah, so Takanosuke Nojiri is working with Sako Takatani. No, he also killed Okiwa, who was working with Sako Takatani to get Tatawaki Koryami to Tokugawa. Well, then who is Takanosuke Nojiri trying to help? He's trying to help himself. He wants Seikon Takatani to kill Shigeyuki Koremori so that Sasuke Saratobi can kill Seikon Takanaki. Did Sasuke Saratobi kill Takanosuke Nojiri for all this shit? No, Saizo Kirikaguri does that. Well, then who the hell is Saizo Kirikaguri? I don't know! Third base! David, are we here to talk about Samurai Spy? Yes, we are. Shall we begin? The craze of the 60s is going largely unnoticed in Japan, where sword-fighting movies are getting darker, grittier, and bloodier. Director Masahiro Shinoda thinks the films are becoming a bit too focused on the violence and aims to have his own contribution focus more on politics, intrigue, and the interlocking motivations of the characters. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave. And we like to talk about spy movies. And as we continue to explore the outer boundaries of what can be called a spy film, we enthusiastically present 1965 Samurai Spy. Everyone has a hidden motive in this episode of Spies Like Us. Other names for this film are Ibun Saratobi Sasuke, also known as Spy Hunter. The year of the movie is 1965. And although it's a period piece uh, dealing with uh, ancient feudal Japan, uh, the, the current politics of 1965 are uh, acknowledged by the director as being very influential on, on the feel of this film. Uh, during the time, Japanese are, are watching the U.S. and the USSR and really wondering, like, like which is which is the side that we should be on? Like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And this film is very much about that uncertainty, that uncertainty of uh, you know vast vast powers making plays and 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 things being done in the shadows and and uh, just just all that kind of intrigue. And and the movie essentially is really about like uh, the uncertainty of of being able to discern friend from foe. Well, you know, this uh, film takes place. Uh, pretty much directly after the Battle of Sekigahara. And um, uh, there was kind of a time of peace going on. You know what I mean? So uh, a lot of the main factions were using ninjas during this time period. So it was actually a great parallel for the Cold War. An Uh, uneasy peace. uh, Yeah. A Cold War, if you will. Yeah, I know, right? And uh, So we, we basically had... Uh, so just for a quick history, uh, the Battle of Sekigahara is when uh, this is this is actually what marks a change of an era. This is where we went from the Senkoku Jidai periods, which is like the warring states. So it was all just a bunch of warlords trying to battle over territories and resources. And uh, Ieyasu Togogawa takes power uh, in this decisive battle of Sekigahara which is what like starts this time of peace. But this put a lot of samurai out of work and created a lot of ronin. And there were a lot of people that were not happy about this. Well, one of the factions that had been defeated was the Toyotomi led by Hiyoshi, 
basically that group along with some of the samurai that were out of work and a lot of the ronin a lot of peasants and stuff like that weren't very happy about it so they kind of built their own kind of uh i guess fortitude and and held up into osaka and so they actually uh represented a real very realistic threat at this time the toyotomi that's the defeated not not necessarily defeated but they lost the big battle and they're right. the ones that are held up in osaka yeah they retreated back in osaka and held that fortress so in a way like even though like you could say the war has been won by right. tokugawa Right. Toyotami is not yet defeated, really. Right, right. And this this is the big parallel for the Cold War, um, because this is a really, really big, decisive battle for Japan. This, this is what starts the Edo period, and this is the idea of a unified country. So, in essence, the parallels is kind of idea following the aftermath of World War II, where the, the conflicts have been settled, but there still is a real threat from, uh, you know, the USSR, while USA is kind of one of the bigger world powers at that time. And that's what triggers the Cold War. And uh, analogous to the, the story of this film is what triggers the mini Cold War for about 14 to 15 years uh, before the siege of Osaka. Yeah, I think it's, the, the, it's all the Cold War influence on this film uh, on its feel, uh, which just made it like a really natural choice when we were looking around for a, you know, we wanted to do a spy movie that was like totally outside of the uh, usual like U.S., English, Russian, uh, you know, all all this modern stuff. We wanted to find like some some kind of ancient spy movie, and and the fact that this one is so steeped in the Cold War and comes out right in 1965 yeah. uh, just makes it makes it a really good candidate. Yeah, and, and we're, one of the biggest parallels was that Tokugawa and Toyotomi both employed the use of different ninja clans and organizations of the time to gain information on each other. And there were multiple, you know, uh, double agents and triple agents and people switching sides and uh, all kinds of stuff. So it really, really is a solid parallel to the Cold War. Um, and you you described the to me the Yagyu clan in particular as being like one of the more famous ninja clans in history. Right. And, and, and they serve Tokugawa. And, yeah, and in this movie, they're on to Team Tokugawa. Right, and and they're not necessarily like owned by Tokugawa. They're kind of in their service, so to speak. Um, but in this film, they're they're playing for Team Tokugawa. Uh, you know, so it's, but they're, they're a very, 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 very famous family. Of course. Well, every, you know, every Japanese um, themed, uh, like medieval history video game I've ever played, or board game for that matter, if it's taught me anything, it's that there were a lot of shifting loyalties between clans and everything was about like, uh, you know, just trying to secure the, the side and the loyalty of like more than the other guy. Right, exactly, and and that that's pretty much the setting we start our story in. We're um, gonna see. We're gonna have most of the action here happen in the province of Sua, which is currently in play. There are some people in Sua that would like to go to the Tokugawa side. There's some people in Sua that would like to go to the Toyotami side. 
Yeah, and that, that's the, the area that we mainly focus on. And um, that's actually how we meet our hero, Sasuke Saratobi, who uh, is on his way to Suwa on orders from the Sonata clan to gain information about kind of the current, uh, I guess, climate. He, <laughs> sort of he, he describes his lord as being, of the Sonata clan, as being a very careful, quiet man who just watches both sides and just keep, plays his cards very close to his chest. Right, and, and it's kind of public information that the Sonata clan is aligned with the Toyotomi, but from the feel of what people say, the way Sasuke describes them, or his lord, that it's not set in stone, so to speak. He's kind of just watching. I believe that they're described as not being declared, but as being strongly leaning Toyotomi. Right, right. And you know, our our uh, our hero Sasuke is pretty much a man of justice that's kind of torn between the two factions, and you know finds himself in kind of a dilemma, and which we'll go over in a little bit. And he has to decide which direction to go at this point. And this is kind of what sets the story off. Yeah, uh, it's the story of Sasuke trapped in the middle, trying to determine, uh, just like the director said, like who. Who is right in this in this battle? And Sasuke is a man in the movie who's deeply troubled just even by the not not necessarily by warfare itself, but by how trivially people treat it, you know, almost like they treat it like a game and, and he doesn't right. respond well to that. Yeah, he, he values life and death uh, very, very deeply and um, mainly uh takes it very seriously and he makes his decisions on life and death with 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 uh I, I guess um uh with, with a lot of consideration it's, it's he doesn't take it lightly at all whatsoever and and so that's kind of why he's stuck because he doesn't have all the information and what he's trying to figure out is who's on the side of justice quote unquote now if I'm a Japanese, movie audience goer in 1965 i would know the name sasuke saratobe wouldn't i you would actually and in fact there's another character that we meet at the end with no explanation that they would also know um you know i, I kind of just when i've done research on this and and you in the research that you brought up to me it kind of feels like a king arthur you know there's not there's not a lot of accurate lore out there there probably was a guy but most of the lore out there changes over the centuries. And um, so if you mention the name Sasuke Saratobi, they'll be like, oh, yeah, the, the, the guy, the, the famous ninja, you know, or, or whatever. Uh, you know, he, he was one of the famous ten sonatas, and he actually led them or whatever. Um, he's been in on-call all kinds of popular culture. There's been several movies made about him, several anime, several manga. He's been in video games. He was even in, in like Naruto. Sometimes, kind of sometimes, sometimes they just sometimes a, a manga or anime just names one of their characters Sasuke Saratobi just as a nod to him, even if they're not actually talking about the guy himself. Right, exactly. You know, and and it's also become kind of a generic term for like ninja, like our show Ninja Warrior in the states. They call it Sasuke over there, from what I read, or at oh, least really, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's 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 a name that everybody would have known. I don't know how accurate 
the film depicts the legends, but there's several legends, and it supposedly could be based on two different uh, historical ninja or samurai. Uh, but it's it, it's it like I said, it's 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 very uh, very much like the King Arthur lore. There, there was probably a guy, but <laughs> none of the lore out there is is uh, very accurate or been proven to be very accurate. Right, and the other, like, another similarity with King Arthur that, that I'm seeing is that uh, most of the stories that were written about King Arthur were written many, many hundreds of years after uh, the time that he supposedly lived. Stories of Sasuke don't even show up until, like, a completely later period, probably hundreds of years after the events of this movie. Yeah. And I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, it's me awesome. too. Let's get to the briefing room. Yeah. Voice pattern recognized. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Basically, we're going to consider first the event, that, even though in this case it's a very small event, that precipitates you know, further events and further events and further events, uh, almost like a pebble, like, dropped into a pond where each concentric circle is, uh, like, uh, affected by all the circles that are within it. Uh, in this case, the pebble is the Catholic boy, Yashiro. Now, we're going to also be using a lot of nicknames here uh, because this movie throws a lot of Japanese names at you. The Catholic boy is trying to escape anti-Catholic oppression in Tokugawa. What he's trying to do is get to his grandpa, whose name is Horikawa. Horikawa is currently the minister of the Sua clan, and that is the clan that we just described as being kind of in between Tokugawa and Toyotami. Uh, Sua is very much in play right now, with some people being pro-Tokugawa, some people being pro-Toyutami. Grandpa is pro-Toyutami, probably because they don't persecute Catholics. Yeah, I really liked uh, the grandpa, how he kind of played the situation. Um, he kind of, you know, did his duty, but sees his grandson in a lot of trouble. He's, you know, just really looking like he's very, very just loyal to the Toyutami, but in the end, he's loyal to family. He had these fox ninjas that showed up later during the rescue of uh, the temple girl, um, which I thought was kind of cool. They created this whole diversion with explosives and stuff. That was kind of fun. He's getting he's getting plus five points for concealing his true ambition. Yeah. Uh, he's getting spy points for there's later in the film when he detects that Sasuke might actually be an asset. You know, like when they're having that that strange moment in the meeting room where uh, Sasuke notices the crosses. And you can definitely see that Grandpa's figuring something out and Sasuke's figuring something out. Right. He's getting spy points for having a secret force of fox ninjas that Toyotomi doesn't even know about. Yep. And he deploys those fox ninjas at the right time to capitalize you know he can't he knows his guys alone can't rescue the catholic boy his grandson but uh he does see and move in and deploy those ninjas at the right time to capitalize when sasuke is trying to rescue the girl which is a character we'll bring up later 
he also sees the opportunity to rescue his grandson. And then later in the movie as well, he deploys those same fox ninjas again at the right time while other people are doing their things and making their play in order to also rescue uh, his son, uh, who's the father of the Catholic boy. Yeah, so he's the next one we're going to talk about, which is the defector. His name is Tatawaki Koriyama, and is currently the spy master, one of the spy masters for the Tokugawa uh, via the Yagyu. Um, but as we kind of learn, you know, uh, with with both the grandfather, the son, and the grandson, where it's the family is their biggest motivation. So he ends up defecting to kind of protect his son from this religious oppression, and he knows that he can't really do it on his own. The defector and his father, who we call Grandpa, uh, were once in the same clan, and the, and the defector left that clan to join Yagyu. And that caused some estrangement between... Uh, you know, father and son. And it was later that Grandpa's clan ended up joining, aligning with Toyotomi, and it was later that the son's clan ended up aligning with Tokugawa. So just not necessarily by design or by choice, but they've just kind of ended up on opposite sides in this Cold War. But the defectors still, I mean, in his heart, even though he probably hasn't talked to his his father for a long time, he knows his father will will help his son's son, the Catholic boy. We actually don't get to see much of the defector. He's just mostly talked about. We don't really see him till the end. So a lot of the different things that he does um, are more talked about. But he definitely has quite a bit of spy points. Uh, he wrote a letter where he's asking for Sasuke's help, talking about the situation to help him rescue his grandson. And I think this is the biggest spy points that we're going to get for him. And in fact, this is one of Todd and I's best trade crafts for the film. He wrote this letter that had like multiple hidden messages. And some of those messages were even decoys. So some people that saw the letter were like, oh, here's a hidden message. But it wasn't quite the whole truth or it wasn't really any of the truth. He, it was hid, just... he Apparently he hid some secrets in there that... Uh, were easier than others to figure out. I think in total, there's there's three hidden meanings hidden in the letter, which uh, is why I think it gets my number three best tradecraft is uh, just crafting the letter. And most of those, he he's trusting Sasuke to figure out, which eventually happens. And that's and I put that down as my number two. I I thought that was really clever that he created a decoded or a coded message that had multiple, multiple layers of meanings. Um, i give, got to give him some minus five points, though. Uh, the guy that he's going to trust to uh, deliver this letter turns out to be untrustworthy in a way that we're going to talk about a little later when we get to that guy. And uh, also, I think he gets a big minus five points. In fact, this is my number one worst tradecraft uh, by defecting at all. I think that he would have done a lot better by his son, Catholic boy, simply by sending the letter and maintaining his cover. Oh, and so he could have protected his son, but still maintained his position. Protected his son by not getting involved. I feel like the fact that he is defecting is what, like, stirs everybody up. Yeah, but what I'm saying is he could have kept his position with the Tokugawa and still protected his son. 
you know, uh, unless we're assuming that he had a change of heart as well and left the Tokugawa. But yeah, you know, I agree with you. Uh, I didn't even think about that. That's a good find. Because I guess what he could have done is sent the son through Dirty Guy. Dirty Guy would have gotten his reward, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then maybe later defected, uh, making sure that his son was safe. Sure, sure. All right, so we know the Catholic boy and the and this, this father-son, grandson dynamic that we have with these three characters. And that's their story. But the truth is, most people in this movie really don't care about Catholic boy. The defector's defection, though, is a huge deal to everyone that finds about it. Um, it's like everyone's like losing their minds. Uh, not everyone necessarily at the movie at the movie's beginning already knows about it, but the moment they do find out about it, it becomes their sole obsession. Tokugawa wants him back. Toyotami wants him to come over, and and the way that everyone is like uh, scrambling around him. Uh, like this movie could have been called "Where in the World Is Tatoaki Koryami?" Yeah, and you know <laughs> that would have been a perfectly, although slightly silly, but a perfectly apt name for this movie, because you know the the secret motivation that he has of why he's defecting, that's you know that's a secret that Sasuke is going to need to like like figure out. But the main story, uh, not not I'm sorry, not the main story, but the story as more people know about the defection than know or care about Catholic Boy. And you're right. This is probably the biggest stirring of the pot because this leads into uh, the the Yagyu head spy master, Sakon Takatani, which we're going to call white guy from now on because he has this very open and flamboyant uh, giant white suit with these big ears or whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, fun, fun fact, this is probably the source material for Finn the Human's hat in uh, Adventure Time. Um, like, we, debate, we, we debated calling him Finn the Human as his nickname for this movie. Um, trust me, like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the exact same hat. But it's not just the hat. His whole suit is bright white. It's the most conspicuous suit ever. And on top of that... He's always doing these like extravagant moves and stuff, very, very kabuki like, you know, uh, in in all of his action. So it, it was actually a lot of fun watching this actor portray this guy. Um, and, you know, for for a big high end spy master to be out in the open with his giant white suit was was actually kind of fun to watch. He's uh, a, he's he's a fun character. I like him uh, the whole way through the film. Uh, he essentially kind of plays the heavy archetype for us um like he's the main uh guy that we see as being uh you know like equal to sasuke in in combat or something they have a lot of run-ins together that in which neither of one of them particularly prevails although sasuke does kill him at the end yeah and, and he's actually a really capable spy master you know and he's he's not quick to make decisions he, he leaves Sasuke alive when he doesn't have the information about the defector yet. Um, you know, and, and so he gets a lot of spy points. Um, actually, my number three best tradecraft. Early in the film, we have Sasuke talking to uh, this dirty guy that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And this, this uh, young, pretty kind of dancer girl just walks on through their conversation and then sits down nearby 
Well, that later on turns out to be, uh, uh, you know, an important character. And so if you go back and watch the movie, the timing of when she's kind of placed, you realize she's probably working for white guy the whole time. And this is an early, you know, chess piece being played into the game. And so I, I, that, that, I put that down as my number three best tradecraft because he's already having them watched at this point. He's not killing Sasuke or the dirty guy or whatever. He's trying to get information. You know, he's not making any moves. He's just kind of watching the situation. So we already know he's a very, very, very competent spy master. Yeah, and also I give him plus spy points for the fact that he doesn't uh, kill or try to capture Sasuke, but tries to keep him in play. Uh, even rescuing him and saving his butt a few times. Um, because right, it's not a clear, like, you know, bad guy, good guy thing. He, it's it's mainly like, here's the situation. You know, I don't want to kill you or fight you. Like, you know, let's let's work together. You know, he, he definitely plays it very well. He definitely says at one point, like, I don't want you to die right now. Like, even though, right. like, I haven't decided which side you're on, and I'm kind of leaning toward you might be my enemy, but I know that you're an honorable man, and... I just can see the opportunity is greater by having you on the board than being taken off the board. Right. And, and like, he even, like, assisted Sasuke with, like, a couple ninjas for the rescue later where he's like, he's like, hey, look, you know, just, you know, give me something and I'll hook you up, you know. And, and, and he, like, even, like, hey, here, here, here's a few ninjas so you can go, like, on this mission here. So he he really plays the spy master very well. It's not like a you're my enemy, I'm your enemy. Let's let's duke it out. No, you know you know like with with like some of the Bond films or like in in a lot of spy films, like it's always like you're the good, I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. No, I'm the good guy, you're the bad. Guy. Like you know, white guy really plays it as like, hey, look, this is the situation. This is what I want. What do you want? Yeah, he's an interesting he's an interesting guy, and he has a great death line when Sasuke does uh, finally kill him. It's uh, something like, "You're a very interesting fellow, Sasuke yeah. Saratobi." I think it was odd or something. You're very odd. Based. Oh, very odd fellow. Yeah. 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 So we know that uh, white guy is the main guy that's looking for the defector of, on the part of Tokugawa, uh, Totoyami. Spymaster Shigeyuki Koromura would also know, love to know where the defector is. He's kind of like the um, he's kind of like white guys opposite on the other side. However, he's pretty boring and played pretty straight. Yeah, he's just like even though he's the spymaster, he's put in charge of facilitating the handover, I guess, or like gaining the information to get him over. So now here's where things get really interesting because. Again, the defector can't help his son, Catholic boy, directly. So what he does is he reaches out for the help of our hero, Sasuke. This is because he's such a high-profile target, and again, everybody's looking for him. So he needs to, uh, he needs help, basically. And Sasuke seems like a kind of guy that would help him out. So what he does is he recruits Mitsuaki Inamura, who we're going to call Dirty Guy for reasons that will become clear pretty soon. <laughs> he recruits him to get a message to our hero and beg his assistance. And there's, uh, you know, we had some trouble figuring out if the defector is such a brilliant spy, 
we had some trouble figuring out why uh, he ends up putting his trust in such a bad place. But there are some things, there are some clues in the movie that, that kind of show how um, Dirty Guy might have looked like the perfect guy for the job. Two things. First of all, he did fight on the same side as Sasuke in the big battle that happened in 1600 that everyone still like remembers as the last big battle. It's like the World War II of this movie uh, that leads us into this Cold War period. And then second, he also did, the dirty guy used to be in the same clan as Grandpa, like long ago, before Grandpa went to the Sua clan. So he knows the guy that is trying to be recruited to help Catholic boy, and he knows the guy that they're trying to get Catholic boy too. So who better? But dirty guy is dirty. Okay. He plans to get Sasuke to help him cash in on the defector. We had discussed the letter earlier. He actually never gives the letter to Sasuke. Uh, Sasuke doesn't even find out about the letter till later when it's like shoved in his face as a piece of evidence against him. Um, basically, uh, dirty guy is a person that we're calling dirty guy because even though, according to the Criterion Collection and according to some of the director's notes, he is a Toyotomi spy. But from the film, we get where it's flat out told he works for both sides. He's been selling information to everybody. And he's a man of the finer tastes, so to speak. When you say finer tastes, I think, I think he specifically says, like, you need money to buy wine and women. Right. It's, it's wine so and women. There's yeah. there's some pretty big air quotes around finer tastes there. Yeah, and and he's talking about um, you know how much money the reward would be, and with that money we could stay out of war because you know as we discussed earlier, Sasuke is not a person that likes war. It's not necessarily that he's afraid of warfare or conflict. It's it's just he's he takes life and death very seriously, and so I guess Dirty Guy's kind of. Uh, seduction into Sasuke is like, hey, help me out and we'll split the money and and we can just, you know, live a life of ease and buy wine and women. Um, right, and it makes sense because Dirty Guy, I believe, is one of these uh, unemployed samurai that's become unemployed. You know, those type of guys in all spy films that, you know, sells information for a price. It's He's, he's not really on any team. He's, he's His motivation is money. In a different movie... Uh, set in a different era, uh, filmed in a different part of the world, this guy would have been played by Peter Lorre. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that type of a guy. There's a point later in the film where, you know, Sasuke is finally kind of traveling together with him. Uh, they go to, like, kind of a whorehouse-type place, and 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 dirty guy is just drinking his face off and talking about getting prostitutes and stuff. And Sasuke had just killed like what six, seven men to save Dirty Guy's life. And and he's like, hey, Dirty Guy's like, hey, do you want a prostitute, Sasuke? And he's like, dude, like some dudes just died over this. Like that's not anything to be taken lightly. Do you think right? And like dirty, and Dirty Guy is constantly telling Sasuke like, I'm in danger. Like, I'm in danger. You got to help me. Yeah, and here he is just sitting around getting, like, you know, drunk off his face and, and, and buying prostitutes. 
and he's supposed to be fearful his life, and he, he he just like doesn't care at this point. And it's, I mean, it might have been that that's kind of him to take it like self medicating and take the edge off of like almost dying. But you know, this is also where we learn that he sold. Oh no, no, we learned this earlier. Basically, one of the other dirty things we didn't discuss yet. He actually gave the Catholic boy over to the Sua magistrate just so he could hold on to the defector because the defector would yield him more money. And so, the thing is, and the thing is, that's a really nasty double cross because the whole point of his mission is to get someone to help Catholic boy. Not only that, I'm going to turn on the guy that assigned me this mission and cash in on a fat payday. He's going to Sasuke and saying like, hey, I know where the defector is and there are a lot of people that will pay us a lot of money and if you help me we can split it dirty you're so dirty dirty. super dirty he's already sold out this poor kid that's just trying to like get away from oppression he's now trying to like profit off of the defector and get sasuke in on it and then changes the entire plan to returning the defector back to tokugawa because he'll probably get way more money and way more recognition where he could just live a life at ease to buy wine and women. He would have done much better if he had just played his card straight and trusted Sasuke, and I'm giving him minus five points for trying to complicate things the way he did. Of course, if he hadn't, we wouldn't have a movie. Right. And and uh, the, these two situations are kind of my second and first word tra- worst tradecraft. The first one, uh, this goes back to the defector, the, the defector shouldn't have trusted the dirty guy. Um, as we learn in the film, dirty guy has been playing both sides. And since defector was a Tokugawa spy, he would have known that dirty guy had been playing both sides. So I mean, it only takes, it only takes Sasuke, like what, like 10 minutes to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Like one day, one day working, you know, traveling with this dude to figure out, wow, this dude's kind of like scum of the earth type of thing. You know, and, and, you know, and Sasuke gives him his whole speech about life and death and how important, like, people are. And, you know, it's, so I, I, don't, I don't know how the defector, who's supposed to be, like, some spy master guy, trusted this dude with the letter to get it over to him. Um, and, and, well, this goes back to your point. Like, why didn't he just send the grandson? Because the grandson was much less of a target than he himself was. Uh, but I guess we wouldn't have had a movie either. Um yeah, I mean, Dirty Guy is a central character. He's he. I mean, he dies uh, early in the movie, but uh, again, like his little shady, dirty business betrayal stuff is what like really muddies the waters of an already complicated situation. Right. That's his. That's his role as a character. Yeah, and this leads into my number one worst tradecraft. I mean, this dude who has had his life threatened, he's obviously played both sides for a, a long time, so he knows how dirty the intelligence game is, right? And here he is with an important document in his possession that he still hasn't even handed to Sasuke. He has a very important target that we presumably assume that he knows where the guy is, right? And what is he doing? He's getting drunk off his ass and hiring prostitutes, having a party, Without even completing the mission yet, this is this is hardly the time to start like a party. You know what I mean? It's 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 uh it really shows like what kind of level of dirtiness this guy is. He's just a guy that like tries to get his paycheck so he can go and party again. It, it's he, he really do, you know. And Sasuke points this out to him. You really don't understand. 
you're this clever guy that plays both sides and you don't understand life and death. You don't understand the, the things that matter. You don't understand things like justice. You know, you turn this little boy over. You, 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 you're selling out this defector. You're double-crossing all these people. And for what? For money? You know, it, it, it's not right. You know, and it's, it, it's it, this is by far, I think, the worst decision you made in the, in the movie. It's like, here, let me just party right now while everybody's looking for this guy. And they probably know that I have him. Well, somebody knows about it. And that's our next character and our next layer of the layer of the pool ripple yeah. or onion, if you will. Yeah. Um, the Toyotomi, we mentioned that uh, the main Toyotomi guys is pretty boring and, and is just playing it straight. He doesn't he doesn't really do anything interesting. He doesn't make any plays. His lieutenant, however, Takanasuki Nojiri is a really cool character and turns out to be the ultimate supervillain of the film. We gave him the name K-pop. Yeah. You gave him the name K-pop. Here's, here's the most ridiculous boy band like haircut ever. David, confirm. How excited do, did I get when he showed up at the end of the movie and we learned that he was that the actual mastermind? Oh, you, you jumped up and screamed. You were You were even mentioning it. You were talking about, wouldn't it be great if K-pop just showed up at the end, you know, and, and then he shows up and you just jumped out of your seat and cheered. With your I was hands hell up. yeah. I was hell yeah. I wanted you, this guy to, I wanted this guy to you, be the villain. You were so excited. Yeah. Cause he was such a creeper from the start, from the moment we meet this guy where, you know, there's all this tension and this guy is like, like so into himself and he's like, you know, flicking his little hair back and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. But he also seems like a very serious and competent guy, and he is—he's um, very uh, on top of Sasuke's case uh, when they do get their hands on Sasuke, because at that point, uh, Dirty Guy is dead, and there's also another death uh, has occurred, which I don't think we've mentioned yet, and uh, K-pop is is trying to make it look like uh, Sasuke is responsible for these. And that's our first clue, real big clue, that K-pop is um, lying about things because he, when, when Sasuke protests his innocence, K-pop says, we found this in your sleeve, and that's the first time we see the letter. Sasuke doesn't know anything about the letter, and he says, and he says so, like, I've never seen this letter. And that's immediately... We have to know that K-pop's lying, right? He's lying yeah. about something. You know, I mean, like, as soon as he's introduced, it, it, you just get this weird feel that something's off about him. But considering the evidence that's presented, you know, it, it's pretty seriously looking bad for Sasuke. And so they're, they're putting him through the third degree at this point. There's a full-on interrogation with the spy master for the Toyotomi, Grandpa and k-pop and they're sitting there and they're presenting this evidence to him and sasuke's like look i didn't do it what do i need to do to prove it to you and and that's when they first pull out the letter and they show we found this letter in your sleeve okay so we gotta we gotta we gotta totally back off and and see like how k-pop's whole plan has evolved uh again k-pop ostensibly He's the spy lieutenant for the Toyotomi. However, at the end of the movie, we'll find out that he's actually a Tokugawa spy. 
which is cool and would have been a good enough twist on its own. But it gets even better. K-pop has actually got an even greater master plan, which we're going to have to describe. I guess we're going to have to describe what he does here because he's the one that killed Dirty Guy. Um, now, now, when Dirty Guy was killed, remember, like, uh, Sasuke saw, like, just, you know, just uh, a ninja escaping into the darkness. He didn't know who it was. It was K-pop. And why did K-pop kill Dirty Guy? I think he killed Dirty Guy because he wanted to be in control of the pieces. What happens if K-pop doesn't kill Dirty Guy? What happens? How do things unfold if people don't interfere? If this action is not taking place? Well, what happens is Sasuke either agrees to help Dirty Guy to take him to Tokugawa or convinces Dirty Guy to take him to Toyotomi. And that means K-pop doesn't have control over the situation. And by killing Dirty Guy, who hasn't handed the letter over, and who's announced to the world at an inn, <laughs> you know, with prostitutes and drinking and stuff, where there's probably people spying on him, he's announced to the... Here, might as well put up a big neon sign. Hey, I'm going to, like, back off of my plan and just give this kid over, or give the defector over to Tokugawa, you know... <clears throat> The dirty guy's basically announced his plan, and he, he hasn't hidden his, uh, I guess, objectives. So here is an opportunity for K-pop to take control of the situation. Because a dirty guy had even said when he was discussing whether or not he should go to Toyotomi or Tokugawa, he's like, I hold this man's fate in my hand. And and I, I guess overhearing this, K-pop has looked and seen for an opportunity where he could take control of the situation. And so and that's... I, what I think he gets more than he bargained for when he finds the letter. Yes. And then and then plants that letter or claims to have found it on Sasuke at the interrogation, which the letter is addressed to Sasuke because this really makes it look like he is the one that killed Dirty Guy. And, and, and now Toyotomi and Suwa and everybody thinks Sasuke is the one that's the mastermind, knows where the defector is, and is trying to take control of the situation himself. Meanwhile, there's also the um, dancing woman, Okiwa, that worked for White Guy that was trying to get info, information from Sasuke by seducing him. And K-pop killed her as well. And so that would have stopped Tokugawa from getting the defector. So he's, he's committed two murders. One, to stop Toyotami from getting the defector. Two, to get Tokugawa from getting the defector. And he's framing let's, Sasuke for both of them. Right, well, let's backpedal a little bit. The dancing girl that we're talking about is the best tradecraft that we had mentioned earlier, that white guy had planted earlier. This dancing girl kind of, we later find out, seduced Sasuke, she, she, her line was, you, you thought you chose me, but I chose you. And so they had like a moment together. And this was important in the interrogation. So Sasuke and Dancing Girl sleep together. <clears throat> and she's later found murdered. And so in the interrogation, when Sasuke mentions, oh, I would kill the murderer for personal reasons, it's because he claims she was more dear to me than anyone else. So he had fallen in love with this Dancing Girl. So um, basically... Dancing Girl and Dirty Guy were killed by K-pop. And now, in this interrogation, K-pop is putting up all of this really bad evidence onto Sasuke that Sasuke is the murderer because he was 
with both of them both times during the murders. So let's let's go down the list of, of K pop's awesomeness because he gets the most plus five points of anyone in this movie. Uh, number one, he's a Tokugawa spy who infiltrated Toyotomi and rose up the ranks to become second in command there. Or or we don't know if that's actually how it played out. Maybe he was a Toyotomi that successfully negotiated his double cross with Tokugawa. Either way, he's slick. Um, killing one person to stop the defector from getting to one side and killing another person to stop the defector from getting to the other side. This is awesome. What he's really trying to do here is he knows that if he can keep this whole situation at a boil, like he wants the defector to, to continually be in play. Remember I asked you the question when we were trying to analyze and figure all this out, like, what would K-pop have done if he had gotten his hands on the defector, do you think? Well, I think he would have kept him alive and figured out his situation and made a decision based on that. But I, 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 I think he would have killed him, but not told anybody and continued to spread information on both sides that, like, we got to still find the defector. We still got to find the defector. Because ultimately, uh, you know, his master plan which is, like, to, to destroy both sides, which succeeds. Like, uh, the, ultimately, he wants the Tokugawa and Toyotami spy masters to destroy each other and leave him which as the sole do. spy master, which they do, right? He and cackles at the end. He cackles at the end. You know, at first it, it went past me. He was like, now that white guy and Toyotami spy master are nothing, uh... I can even challenge Yagyu, or which by which he means like the head of the Yagyu clan, which we've already established are like the the, the super ninjas of of the like the super spies of overall Japan at this point. Go ahead. And at first it went past me, and it was only a couple times later I realized like wait a second, he doesn't just mean that they're nothing now; they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> He's absolutely succeeded. Nobody on either side is left. Because also, at this point, he's also killed the defector. This all happens in the very final scene. I mean, he's, he's killed everyone that knows anything about anything. But he, as a person that has been working both sides, successfully, like, in a way, he's kind of like the... the I, I think of him as the opposite side of the coin of Dirty Guy. Like, Dirty Guy is the guy that's working both sides for money, and K-pop is the guy that's working both sides for ambition. With all these killings, he's pretty much climbed the ladder. And Dirty Guy, as much money as they were throwing at him, and they were talking about large sums of money, by the way. Yeah. Uh, he would never yeah. have to work a day in his life for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, like, Dirty Guy also, like, who was just obsessed with money, like, sucked at being a spy. K-pop, whose sole ambition was ultimate ambition, is really fucking good at his job. And uh, he's getting my number one best tradecraft just for his overall plan. I'm just giving a blanket number one best to K-pop for, for this whole thing. Yeah. There's some specific things, too, that he does, too, that, that should be mentioned. Um, 
you know, like just the fact that he understands when he finds the letter on Dirty Guy and understands that that means that the letter was never delivered to Sasuke. That means that he can use that to to cast massive doubt on Sasuke and by extension Sasuke's clan. Right. Which is is going to create a lot of turmoil because uh the Sonata clan has not declared loyalty to Toyotomi or Tokugawa yet. Right. And again, he just wants everyone to be doubting everyone, which is what the whole theme of the movie is, but the reason K-pop makes such a masterful like a uh, villain character for the story and like the just the concepts that the director Shinoda is trying to underline of everyone mistrusting everyone. Here you have K-pop and he's just absolutely doing everything he can to make sure that everyone keeps continuing to mistrust everyone. He doesn't want the situation to be resolved. He wants it to just stay in this chaotic flux, chaotic flux, chaotic flux until everyone destroys each other and he can be the last man standing. And this leads us into our final layer, which is our hero, Sasuke Saratobi, who we've been discussing a lot throughout this entire uh, podcast. But we wanted to leave him as the last layer, mainly because the surface plot line of the story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense without these onion layers that we're talking about. Basically, he gets dragged into this situation through Dirty Guy, who's, like we talked about, that he was trying to get it, Dirty Guy was trying to get him in to profit off the situation. And Sasuke is also kind of dragged in because of K-pop's manipulations. We only see the story through his eyes. And that's why we went through these layers to kind of explain all of this stuff. This is common with detective films. Like this, this out, this outside layer, even though we're talking about it last, um, this is where like the movie actually resides again, like Dave just said, like, uh, except for some exposition stuff that we get at the very uh, beginning before the title sequence throughout the entire movie, this movie is aggressively focused on Sasuke's POV. Right. And all, all the things that we've discussed here, these are all things that Sasuke needs to learn over time. You know, we never see, for instance, like, we don't see the scene where K-pop killed Dirty Guy. We don't see the scene where uh, the defector gave the letter to Dirty Guy. This is all stuff that Sasuke needs to figure out. He's basically like a film noir detective. He, he's the one that discovers the cross symbols at, at the Sua house. Um, basically, the, da- the daggers that were used to kill Dirty Guy and the dancing girl uh, were the, had these crosses at the top of them, like these kind of bronze or gold-looking crosses. And in the Sua house, there's, they're decorated with these crosses, which, you know, I, I guess plays into... Later, when we find out that the grandpa, the son, and the grandson are all Christian or Catholic, and uh, this is kind of a way that Sasuke starts thinking, well, maybe the grandpa's involved. And uh, it might also be a way for K-pop to kind of play these symbols later to frame it on someone else. And that might have been K-pop's original plan, but uh, Sasuke just kind of fell into his lap type of thing. Uh, 
I think this is a good time to mention that the cross, which in modern day we associate very strongly with Christianity, uh, was originally like a secret hidden code symbol. Like not everyone that saw a cross at a certain point in time knew that that meant that you were a Christian. It was only other Christians that would they would know that oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah yeah i see what you're saying so like that it would have actually been hidden there in japan it's very i think very much so right so it's not like blaring out in front of everybody's face and it's not like a full cross it's more like a plus right yeah. right it's it's like their their little japanese version of the emerging christian underground in japan right right and um so he, he, Sasuke's kind of stuck trying to figure out all the players on the board, all the pieces, putting them together. And, you know, he gets, he gets, he's kind of taken for one on quite a few occasions, but he eventually figures everything out. He's the one that decodes the full letter. He's the one that shows it to everybody to like rightly deduce where the location of the defector is. Um, but I think both Todd and I put this as, uh, I think it was your number two and my number one, where he gave the letter to White Guy. Yeah, that's a good move. That was a slick move. Because at that point, he'd already decoded the information on the letter. So White Guy was happy to take the letter because it had information. But he probably knew that White Guy wouldn't be able to completely decode it. And this is what gets White Guy to hand over ninjas to help him rescue the temple girl. Uh, which we didn't really talk about her very much, but this is another situation for Sasuke where he falls in love with another girl and she gets captured and now he wants to go rescue her. Well, this is what white guy uses as, you know, here, uh, I want to help you rescue this girl. What can you give me? And Sasuke's like, here, here's the letter that I was given from the defector. You know, this should be more than enough information for you to figure out where he is. And I gotta say, Sasuke is not, uh, he doesn't get a lot of spy points in this movie. He doesn't really act much like a spy. And I don't even give him a lot of spy points for figuring shit out, since most of it is like just given to him uh, by Grandpa after the rescue, and the rest is explained to him by K pop at the end. Like, yeah. he doesn't do a whole bunch of, like, he doesn't, like, run any ops. He doesn't do any, like, deception kind of things. He's just kind of there. He kind of gets dragged in. Uh, I think you and I need to have a discussion of something in depth, uh, maybe not on this podcast, but something that you've been bringing to my attention more and more lately is how the protagonists in spy movies in general just don't have that much of an arc. No. You know, like James Bond has got no arc. <laughs> yeah, none whatsoever. Yeah. And it's and it's not it's not that necessary for movies that that they have an arc. But in this case, like especially coming right off the heels of our last episode, Miss Sloan, where you know Sloan, she actually had an arc. You know, but right. it wasn't like okay, a but, big but not, arc. Like yeah, but not like, just that she has an arc, but that she's acting like a spy. She's pulling strings. She's she's deceiving people. She's she's hiding little hidden bombs. She's arranging moles. All this stuff. Sasuke's doing none of that in this movie. All he's doing is being more like the uh, film noir detective 
that is just kind of dragged into a case that he really didn't want to be involved in against his will and just kind of surviving until the truth is revealed to him. But, but, that's not to take away from this one master stroke of his, which is giving the undecoded letter to White Guy. Because Sasuke knows that White Guy isn't going to get all the information that he needs from the letter. So it's like giving someone something that, like, looks really valuable to them, but it's not. And that's, yeah, uh, yeah that's why it made... You're number one, my, my number two. Good calls on both of our parts. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the um, uh, Indiana Jones, where they, they realize that, uh, you know, the Nazis only have half of the message because they didn't see the other side of the medallion. Right, right. You know, and, yeah, the, yeah he didn't do a whole lot, and this is probably his biggest uh, shine of the movie or his biggest play. I mean, he's also the one that recognized Grandpa had a secret motive. I mean, in the old, in the town scene earlier in the film where uh, the Catholic boy is being walked through the public or through the street, he sees the Grandpa watching kind of upset. Um, And then at the interrogation, he notices the crosses and starts watching Grandpa. So I think he's the one that first realizes grandpa has ulterior motives which are not necessarily it's at that point it's at that point yeah i gave i gave spy points to both sasuke and grandpa because they clearly have realized something about one another right what exactly that is isn't a hundred percent clear but they have they have they have made a connection to realize that uh each of them is more than what they seem Right after the rescue, where uh, Sasuke gets Omeo, the girl, back, and also just instantly rescues Catholic Boy, and Grandpa explains everything to him, or explains half of things to him, um, he immediately goes back to the Toyotomi Spymaster and K-Pop and tells them that basically that grandpa has betrayed them. Although Sasuke, by the way, I mean, that's how they see it. They see it as a betrayal. Sasuke specifically says, you know, well, I think betrayal is a pretty strong word uh, for what's going on. Like, you guys are kind of jerks, and and I can totally, like, dig on grandpa for doing this. But my question to you is, like, why does Sasuke go to Toyotomi and let them know anything. After all, it's at this point that he decodes the other two uh, missing parts of the letter, and he shares that information with them. And I am on the fence on whether I'm trying to give him plus spy points for this or minus spy points for this. What do you think? I think it was more cinematic than it was, like, his play. I think it was just expository explaining the situation to the audience. Um I don't think he really needed to explain this unless they were, well, I guess they were trying to flee the situation. Um, Who's they when you say they? You know, the, the, the grandpa, the dad, and the grandson. Right. They're trying to get back to Toyotomi, so I guess they're still trying to maintain somewhat of their loyalty, but it's not, it's, I don't really see it as... I think it's more just this. This scene just is more as exposition for the audience. I mean, it's a reason to get to get the Toyotomi to the 
the final place where the defector has been hiding this whole time. The best I can come up with is that maybe, uh, so like Sasuke, now that he has the letter. Yeah. And because he's talked to grandpa, now he knows the stakes and now he knows who's good and who's bad. He hasn't, well, he hasn't quite figured out that K-pop is really, really, really bad. But uh, he's he's declared himself for uh, the side of the family. The Catholic boy, the defector, the grandpa. He wants to help them. And now that he has the letter, he knows where the defector is. But it's in town, so maybe he thinks he can't... I mean, if he didn't tell them what was up, he could have just gone into town and tried to extricate the defector on his own. But maybe because he has been framed for two murders, he thinks it's too dangerous to go in there on his own. So he brings them along as backup, even though he's not really planning on playing on their side. That's the case for it being plus spy points on his side. But again, I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get there. Yeah, it was quite a bit. But it should be, I guess, minus, I mean, well, minus spy points, because what k-pop does with that information is then he does give white guy the information about where the defector is and of course k-pop does that because again he wants everyone involved you know so now i wanted to go into some uh just uh i did have some other spy points like even though we basically like explained the the whole film and like everything that happens uh we, we do have to get to this ending which is going to be its own little section. But uh, during the rescue operation, uh, I like the I like the ninjas being sent to divert the guards first by going over to the left and scaring the woman, and then having another guy go and like just jump in their face and say "Ha! Chase me!" Yeah, and, like and fun. like run to the it, gate. It was a fun surprise for the movie because here you know Sasuke's in a tough, tight situation. And then the fox ninjas show up and create like this big explosive diversion that like confuses the guards. So it was definitely really helpful. Right. But before the fox, before grandpa's fox ninjas show up, the two Tokugawa ninja that were loaned to Sasuke by a white guy, like kind of did their part by diverting the guards so he could get into the middle. But here's why I give them minus spy points. They never show up again. They just disappear from the film. We, well, we never they, see what happened to them. Like, look, if... Well, they, if they jump off and... You know, well, I mean, we're not seeing this, but, you know, presumably they go and disappear into the night. Uh, they, you know, they don't have any really significance in the story. So I right, think they, but, maybe, but maybe they could have had a better plan where, you know, like, yeah, I appreciate that you went and distracted the guards, but maybe you could also, like, stick around and help yeah. <laughs> in some other ways instead of just like no longer being in the movie oh well maybe the plan was to leave sasuke to be killed because white guy had the letter so he probably presumed that he had all the information he needed so that would have put sasuke in a bad position he probably would have you know died so like- that's kind of like a plus fly point to white guy where he's covering his tracks I like that. If 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 true, if true, that's definitely that's definitely plus five points. But that's pretty much uh, well, which we call it um, speculation on our part. Yeah. 
Uh, massive spy points. In fact, I just plugged this into the script. I almost forgot about this one. I love it so much. Remember the girl gets captured by the pro-Tokugawa magistrate, right? When they get captured and when White Guy shows up to help Sasuke, like, fight off the pro-Tokugawa forces, uh, which is basically the cops of Sua. Right. Uh, she gets carried off. Uh, white guy helps helps out, and um, he he brings up the two ninjas, and, and he's like, here, we have marked her with a scent. And I forget what his name is, but he says, like, you know, Uma can follow it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By which, you know, he's referring to one of the ninjas. And, like, I gotta give Mad plus spy points for, like, I don't know, just ninja stuff, like, Marking, marking her with scent and for having ninja that, like, have, like, great noses that can, like, track a falcon on a windy day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was dope. And then also I got to give uh, plus spy points for the fox ninjas uh, in the later part where they're um, extracting the defector uh, from the shrine. Uh, he's badly wounded. They take note and they grab him and they and they throw a fox ninja mask on him in order to get him out safely. And uh, yeah, just plus five points for having an extra mask that you can throw on your dude so it's uh, easier to get him out of town. Yeah, that was actually really cool. I really enjoyed that because uh, we didn't discuss this, uh, but the defector had health problems. And so what they did was had two dudes like kind of help him out while... I guess he kind of collapsed a little bit, you know, sheathed his sword, put on a fox mask and then like helped him out. So during the, in the middle of the festival, while everybody's wearing all kinds of masks and stuff, they were able to get him out of the situation. Yeah, that was dope. Uh, so you ready to talk about the end of this movie? Yeah. It's not a lot of spy craft that we need to talk about here. Well, uh, it looks like Dave's got uh, something he needs to say about this but yeah. uh it is the end of the movie uh we would be remiss in not discussing it um this is where like a lot of thing uh the the final mm, loose threads get uh taken care of yep mostly by k-pop and it's got a very weird ending which will leave a lot of audiences uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us what happens in the fog? All right. <clears throat> so Sasuke joins the group of escaping people. Uh, they enter this like heavy fog, which is super artistic. And I think I remember commenting on this, like, wow, this film got really artsy all of a sudden. Uh, but um, they, they get uh, through and they make it through the border which is where they're trying to get to and then everybody's pretty much killed uh our key players that we're trying to save all get assassinated uh and then emerges k-pop um and there's this big fight between sasuke and k-pop uh and um i'm gonna give this my number three worst trade craft uh and i think this is more of a cinematic worst trade craft because i think grandpa and defector and sasuke would have planned for a possible kill crossing the border um but uh it looks like they kind of were like so had their eye on the prize they weren't paying attention to the situation and then get in 
getting in there, just like running. Oh, we're almost there. Here's the light at the end of the tunnel, and then they get they get killed. So it, it kind of it, it was kind of something that I think somebody should have considered or been prepared for. But anyway, everybody's pretty much killed, and uh, it's a big showdown between K-pop and Sasuke, and we get our our uh, typical. Uh, end of a spy movie where the villain explains their entire plan. Pretty much. And this is also where Sasuke uh, plays all his cards. Of course, like as far as who to who's left to suspect, there's not a lot of cards left in his hands. Right. And that's when he realizes that K-pop killed the dancing girl and dirty guy. And starts, like, kind of questioning him about what's going on. We get some dialogue between the two of them. And that's where we find out mainly that K-pop is just out for power. I'm giving the movie minus five points for, and not necessarily attributing them to any particular character. But one of the things that happens in their discussion is uh, Sasuke deduces that K-pop was the killer of the dancing woman based on his description of the dancing woman's death, which they had done earlier in the interrogation. And basically, he's saying, you know what? Like, you said that she died with a knife in her throat. But when I found her, she had the knife in her hand. Yeah. <laughs> That's dumb. She still died with a knife I mean, the, the knife in her neck is still what killed her. It's not a very good, aha, I got you moment. It, right. it, yeah. And this leads into the big epic final battle. Uh, and it looks like our hero Sasuke is pinned because there's a big chain wrapped around his neck. And K-pop's about to choke him to death. And then K-pop gets hit in the head with a dart or in the neck with a dart. And the fog clears, and here is our big savior of the moment, Kaiser Soze, uh, which is actually, wait, what was his name? Mario, what was, what was Kaiser Soze is our nickname for the guy? What was his actual name? The character that appears in the final scene of Samurai Spy is Saizo Kirigaguri. Oh, that's right. Anyway, we don't know anything about this guy, other than I think you mentioned earlier that uh, Sasuke had told Grandpa, just meet my friend. There are three times he's mentioned. Would you like me to break them down for you? Yes. Okay. When Dirty Guy first meets Sasuke, uh, he just says, I have been trailing you, and I noticed that from here you could go in two directions. You could go to see uh, this one guy, uh, Anayume. I, I don't remember. I'm not going to look in the notes to see if that's the exact name. But uh, Anayume... By the way, uh, I couldn't find any information about except that that is the name of a peddler, mission giver kind of character in uh, Shadows Die Twice, uh, a video game that came out like recently, which supposedly has a lot of, you know, samurai ninja lore like oh, built into it. And the, a, other, the other way you could go is to go see Kaiser Sose. Right. So that's the first time he's mentioned. The second time he's mentioned is when uh, he's explaining to the girl, Omeo, that Sasuke is not concerned about getting dragged into this because he has friends like Kaiser Sose. And then the third time he's mentioned is when 
grandpa explains all the family stuff about Catholic boy and the defector, like right after the rescue. And uh, Sasuke says, you need to go see my friend Kaiser Soze. So he does get mentioned like three times, but if you uh, if if you're watching this movie for the first time without the benefit of this podcast and us explaining it to you, this guy comes out of nowhere. Yeah, like, and and the music swells like when when he shows up uh, to to rescue Sasuke. It's like. You know, he's striding across the plane. He's got a big smile on his face. He's looking heroic. It was very much like a Western, the way it was shot, where, like, the 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 homie comes and saves the hero, and he's just, like, kind of strutting up onto the scene, you know, like, with a big shit-eating grin on his face, you know. But, you know, uh, like we had discussed at the beginning of this podcast, both Sasuke and Saizo Kitagakure uh, which we've been calling Kaiser Soze, is is they're both people that people in Japan would have known, like as far as lore goes, like they they would have known who this person was, so it wouldn't have been that big of a surprise. Even right, though Kaiser, I, Kaiser Soze was one of the ten heroes of Sonata that Sasuke Saratobi is supposed to be the leader of. Right, exactly. Right, and and so. Him coming in to save the day isn't that big of a surprise considering the culture. But for us watching this, especially with the enormous amount of names that are kind of foreign to us, it's very confusing. So, like. The way I think it should be thought of is like imagine if uh, Sasuke is Captain America and everyone knows who Captain America is. Well, my mom doesn't know who Captain America is. But. Uh, but most people have some idea that he might have a friend named Iron Man that like might show up at the end to like of of a bad situation and help him out. So that's the best way that I can think of like like describing it and and how to make it not just seem like this random dude showing up out of nowhere. Like you have to know the lore uh, of of the people, and apparently, like the movie assumes that the audiences of Japanese theaters in 1965 knew that lore well enough. Yeah, and the, it's interesting that you mentioned Captain America and Iron Man because they both had kind of a rivalry, right? <laughs> Especially considering you know, like in Civil War, where like they they were on opposite sides. Uh, interesting enough is. Uh, Sasuke Saratobi and Saizo Kirigakure uh, were both from opposing ninja clans, the Koga and the Iga, and they kind of were arch rivals and then became homies later, uh, you know, considering after this uh, time period when they fought together in the Siege of Osaka. So uh, it's it's actually like something they already would have known, and that's a different story that we're not told because everybody knows that story. So I think it's interesting this whole film was made because this is a story probably, you know, Japan wouldn't have known uh, colloquially, I guess would be the word. Uh, yeah, it's not something like in the cult. Like this is this is an interesting story in between two big stories that aren't even really shown in the film. They're talked about, 
So this is in between two very, very big battles that were very significant in Japanese history. And in between this, we get the Cold War. You know, it's, it, I, I think it was very well done. So you know I'm going to have to take a little bit of time to talk about camera angles in this film. Oh, you definitely do. I love the camera angles in this film, and I think they are the number one reason that I call this film rewatchable. There is... Uh, there is such a, a, a an insane like some of the places they put the camera. I just I I just try to think like how many hours did you spend putting the camera in different places before you decided on this one? And some of them are just very like uh, jarring and and jarring cuts. And uh, you know I like I felt this as I was watching the movie, but as I did my research on like uh, what what critics have said about this movie like they all like back me up on this like the um the camera angles are are meant to be uh surprising and different and constantly show everything from a different angle than than what you might have expected at first like at once it might be close and at once it might be like hidden behind some uh, obstruction in the foreground and then all of a sudden it's like way back and all of a sudden it's on the other side and I think that uh, this is part of like the cinematographic language of the movie to keep you uncertain about who is who and because this is that's the major like message of this movie is like uncertainty and camera wise like directing wise this movie just like never minding the plot this movie just the way it's shot if you shot any movie this way this movie would just feel incredibly pregnant with uncertainty and doubt and uh not knowing what's what it's brilliant it's fucking no, brilliant. Com- you know, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, like, I don't know too much about angles and like framing and that type of stuff, but like, I the whole time I definitely felt this uncertainty, and I think I think it was you know really really well done. And I know you were really excited about a lot of the lighting and stuff like that. So it it definitely has a big feel to it, uh, like as far as atmosphere. It, it definitely helped a lot of the situation because, you know, our hero is just kind of sort of an every man drawn into the world of intrigue. And so Sasuke's not really a spy, but he dev- definitely becomes one. I mean, he kind of is because he was sent to gain information. But I think this is mainly like a source material or origin story for Sasuke Soratobi onto how he became the leader of the the te- ten heroes of, of Sonata. Um, which, by the way, I'd also discuss with you, like, you know, going back full circle to our first podcast of the man who knew too much and 34 and 56, like this, this whole plot felt very much like that, where it's like, here's like a guy that's not really privy to the like scary dark sides and uncertain sides of intelligence He's just kind of a guy, a man of justice, doing the right thing, and he falls into this world. And, it, and it, it, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed doing this, and I'm glad we added it to our list. 
100% agreed because even though the spy craze that uh, James Bond kicked off in 1961 is rapidly reaching all around the world and, and resulting in spy movies being made, like true spy movies where the hero is a spy, where the hero is sneaky, where the hero lies to people in order to, uh, you know, do his tradecraft and his, and his spying and stuff, you know, where the hero himself can uh, afford to be, you know, to present himself as other than what he truly is, to have different faces. That's something that, again, like, you know, like audiences, like just apparently were not comfortable with or ready for until they saw James Bond. And that's happening now a lot, like all across the world. But Japan seems to be, from my research, uh, largely immune to the spy craze of the 1960s. Because guess what came out in 1961, the same year that James Bond came out in the USA? What? Yojimbo. Oh, yeah. So Japan is going through their own uh, redefinition of the hero that they're concentrating on more well, yeah. themselves yeah. where 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 prior prior to prior to Yojimbo uh the the movies were much more like like drama and there wasn't like a whole lot of sword fighting but by 1965 by this point and it's being very influenced by westerns which you know like uh people like to say like uh oh the westerns like stole so much from you know samurai movies but honestly, you go back and it's actually the samurai movies had stolen from westerns in the first place and just did the shit so much better that then later westerns like came back. You know, it's more like a feedback loop, just in the yeah. same way that like, uh, you know, anime was originally like the, the initial craze of anime of like Astro Boy was like what happened when like Japanese people first saw American cartoons. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this movie, um, you know, in the specifically says, you know, director Shinoda, like, talked to us about it in, in the, uh, yeah, he, interview he, segment. He had, he had mentioned that, uh, the craze then, you know, like you mentioned the spy craze all over the Western world, the craze it then was like these, uh, sword fighting films and Shinoda Which, in the, the extras in his interviews had mentioned that he was kind of tired of the sword fighting and wanted to focus more on, you know, the espionage or uh, this other kind of more political moves. And all of the actual sword fighting happened in the shadows in his films. And, you know, you described, I mean, you described several times like uh, K-pop and Sasuke's final battle as epic. But in fact, it, it, it wasn't. Like, we just saw the fog pass over. And all of a sudden, K-pop was on top of him. He was kind of, um, he was kind of saying, "I feel well, like intentionally because because he even said he even said like uh, as much as he respected Kurosawa, I'm sure he respected Kurosawa, but he said in the interview, like he just thought that Kurosawa was going like a little over the top in like uh, the the Western cowboy influences." And again, like, this is the period where samurai uh, sword fighting is just getting, like, bloodier and bloodier and more gritty. 
And even though there's a lot of like blood spray uh, in this movie, I mean, there's no there's no shortage of blood, but a lot of the fights are like it's kind of like oh I'll go with this it's kind of like uh, Kurosawa is doing like the lightsaber fights from uh, what you call it from the prequels, and Shinoda still thinks like. The real, like the coolest lightsaber fight in all the Star Wars films is just like, of like uh, the Darth uh, the Darth Vader Prince versus Ben Kenobi scene. There was much a, a much more writing behind those fights than in the prequels, and so it seems like Shinoda is mainly focusing on the impact of those fights and building up to those fights. And the fight isn't so exciting; it's just exciting because of the writing. And, and we've actually built up to this fight rather than like in the prequels where it's like, ah, lightsabers. You want lightsabers? Here's more lightsabers. Yeah. And like, I mean, literally, when we finally get to the climax of the movie where the hero and the villain are staring each other down, got their swords out, they're about to fight. What does Shinoda do? I don't know. I mean, maybe he just ran out of film, but I prefer to think that he made this conscious choice to say, you know what, audience, I'm not going to show you this fight because the fight is not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is the consequence of the fight. Definitely agree. Let's come in from the gold. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, I really, really, really enjoyed this film a lot. And I think uh, I don't have enough of an understanding of cinematography and shot angles and framing to really appreciate this, and especially lighting. There's quite a bit of contrast with lighting, of being in the dark and in the light, and, and it, there's tons of stuff speaking. So I think there's a lot that I'm missing on that side. On the other side, as far as like the writing and the story and really the the approach to telling this story i i was very very impressed with uh one of the things i will say that i didn't enjoy was there could have been a little bit more information i mean i love spy films that don't tell you a whole lot and you got to figure it out but i think it would have been helpful to give a little bit more as far as uh, who the characters, like, on the surface work for, at least, you know? Like, we, like you know, we discussed earlier, like, we weren't sure if Dirty Dude was actually Toyotomi or not. We just got that from the Criterion, like, booklet. Uh, other than that, I, I, I was really impressed with this, and I enjoyed every minute of it, especially going back and watching it again. So I'm, I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, I'm going to skip ahead and join you with a solid four for myself as well, and here I'll give my reasons. The majority of my experience with uh, films of this era from Japan is uh, from watching Akira Kurosawa. And Kurosawa's films are like really tight, really technical, um, and, and, just, and just clean in a way that this movie's shagginess really appealed to me. Uh, it's it's a little less well put together, but there's there's much more of a I don't know 
I don't know, just I, I like the shagginess. And it's it's definitely bold in the way that it's shot and the way that it's done. It's got a complicated story, uh, which I'll agree with Dave, um, could have been done better. And possibly some of the blame might go to Janus Films or whoever was responsible for doing the subtitles. Instead of, you know, like, you've got enough characters to follow, like... Just pick a name. Like, stop calling them by their first name in one scene and calling them by their last name in another scene when people are discussing what's going on. It it really throws us off, and we had to, like... Like, we had to make a fucking spreadsheet to, like, figure all this shit out of what's actually going on. And uh, just maybe some better subtitling might have uh, clarified things a little better. There's even some things in the film that I think maybe just poor subtitling uh, is responsible for some of our confusion. Hey guys, Todd here with a quick editor note from the future. Uh, while we, when we recorded this episode, it was based on our watching of the freely available YouTube version of this film. We did later obtain a Criterion Collection DVD of the film, and uh, yeah, we can tell you the subtitles in that version are vastly superior, much more clear, and uh, a lot of the story is just a lot better explained there. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's everything I have bad to say about the movie. That's maybe why it doesn't hit a five for me, but uh, characters are good, uh, story's good. It's rewatchable. You're not going to figure it out the first time you watch it, so you want to <laughs> watch it again. Uh, and maybe some minus points for that weird-ass ending. Because, I, I, you know, I mean, we figured it out basically by going to Wikipedia. I don't think you should have to go to Wikipedia to figure out the ending of a fucking movie. Yeah. So, yeah, but four. Keep it on the shelf. If you like samurai movies, and especially if you like ninja movies, actually, I gotta say, like, uh, this like, is a much better ninja movie than the '80s ninja movies. I, I, I am not a fan of the '80s ninja movies whatsoever. Dude, you love you love ninjas. Is that I true? love ninjas. I do, and and I don't like a lot of the '80s ninja movies because it's all of just course, of course, of course, you don't. And there were some points in this movie watching it together, I could just. I could sense your fucking erection from like <laughs> from like eight feet away. And yeah. let me let me ask you this: like like, have you seen a better ninja movie than this? No, not not that I can think of. Well, we'll have to find you one. Yeah, we definitely got to find some because we'll have I, to find you. A, went, we'll have to find you the five star ninja movie. Yeah, because I, I went I went back and watched some of the '80s ones. Because as a kid, you know, they they like super cool and fun and stuff. And you know, I I went back and watched a lot of them. And I was like, this is pretty bad. Yeah. But, so let's give it a let's give it a redaction rating, um, and let's uh, do that first by uh, asking you to just remind us of your uh, worst tradecraft, or in this case, ninja craft <laughs> of, <laughs> of the movie. So my number three uh, was uh, the grandfather, the son, and the grandson, and Sasuke not being prepared for a possible assassination. 
And my number two, uh, the defector trusting the dirty guy. Uh, he, the defector was a Tokugawa spy master. He should have known that the dirty guy was playing both sides. Uh, my number one tradecraft was the dirty guy spending the night in the whorehouse getting drunk and broadcasting his plan to turn over the defector to Tokugawa. Yeah, my number three also goes to Dirty Guy, just for not knowing how deep that he was in this, you know? Like, not respecting... It's kind of very similar to the the number one that you just described. My number two goes to the movie, not necessarily to any other character. We discussed it recently. Just that stupid thing where, like, uh, Sasuke says, I know that you killed dancing woman because you said that she died with a knife in her throat but when i found her she died with a knife wound in her throat but the knife was in her hand it's it's just uh, (laughs) my number one worst is uh goes to the defector i think that if he had not defected he could have just from his from his position in tokugawa he could have just sent out the letter and just maintained cover uh if he had not made this big like bold move to defect himself and basically like rile everything up it's a bad move yeah here's my best though uh my number three best Oh, goes back to the defector. I like, I like, I'm going to give him, you know, mad spy points for crafting this letter. It has, like, so many multiple hidden meanings in it. And that, you know, he's smart enough to trust Sasuke that Sasuke is going to be able to decode them. Uh, my number two, of course, is when Sasuke trades the undecoded letter to White Guy. And my number one, oh my god, like... Number one best tradecraft for uh, K-pop's master plan. Yeah. And uh, this leads into my best tradecraft. My number three was white dude sending in the dancing girl way ahead of time just to gather information. Uh, My number two, uh, the number, the, the, the multiple hidden messages in the note the defector left, you know, had, had, decoys that would throw people off or like not quite enough information and i thought that was very clever and my number one is sasuke giving the note to white guy to get the ninja backups for the rescue for the temple girl knowing that white guy probably couldn't decode the message or wouldn't decode it in time so our redaction ratings uh i i I, you know we always have to go on a consensus with this I think I'm going to go with the 1.5 with this, uh, where one one is very realistic, five has no basis in reality whatsoever. But I put this on the level with the company. You know, it's it's a historical you know uh, story, and it could have happened the way it did. It probably didn't exactly, so that's why I think we're going for a 1.5 on this. I'm gonna. Uh... I'm going to meet you with, yeah, I'm going to meet you at 1.5. I don't, uh, you know, I definitely like the history lesson. It's, uh, yeah. as you said before, like, this is a, this is a really, like, you know, important 14-year kind of gap between two major periods. 
of, uh, you know, what historians have later, you know, distinguished, you know, this 14 years, like, could have been assigned to the, to the one period that preceded it or to the latter period that came after. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a time of indecision. Um, everyone seems to be like, uh, very well, uh, associated with their particular causes. Uh, I don't know. I don't know though. Like maybe, maybe we should bump it up to a two because outside of, remember our hero here is fictional Everyone here that we actually see in the movie is fictional, whereas in the company, we're actually treated to some fictional representations of real people. Okay, that's true. We actually don't get to see Tokugawa. We don't get to see Toyotomi, you know, and their decisions in this whole escapade, I guess. It, uh, yeah, okay. I, I, I can agree with the two. Let's go with the two. And that's the show. Thanks for listening to Spies Like Us. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Spies Like Us and subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube or any other streaming service or app that you use to listen to podcasts. And one of the most important things you can do to help us is to leave us a review. Uh, Whether you like us or not, if you don't like us, it's great feedback for the show. And if you do like us, it helps us you know, climb the rankings, so to speak. Uh, but thanks for listening. We hope you join us for next time. Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found in the show notes and on the Spies Like Us website. Editing by Todd Hostetler.